Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, as always. We are your hosts, Pastor Christopher Gillespie. Yes, here. You have to sp- it's a podcast, you have to say something, they can't see you. Yeah, I'm kind of in space at the I moment. I guess. And I'm Pastor Dominic Riley, the techno-viking. You have to use your uh, tracking tracking beam, tracking arm, yeah, tracking beam, that's right, to draw me back tracking. home. Track door beam, yeah, drag me home. Drag me home, baby. It's got to be a country music song somewhere. Drag me home. Yeah, need need to be grounded again. Drag me home, country road. Hmm. Grounded. So this week we are diving back into uh, Herr Obermann, Heiko Obermann, and his biography, Luther, the Band Between God and the Devil. And last time at the end of the podcast, we talked about diving into Luther and humanism. Mm-hmm. Since we had deal, dealt dealt with, we have dealt with mysticism, Staupitz's late medieval Roman Catholicism, uh, Bible lectures, yeah. Luther trying to work his way out of his Augustinian lineage. Psalms lectures we talked about, right? That's right, Psalms lectures. So in this episode, then, we'll dive into humanism, which means that we will inevitably dive into conversation about Erasmus of Rotterdam, the prince of the humanists. Yes, Rotterdam. It's a Rotterdam. It was a hip place, you know. It was at the time. They had a, they and, had a uh, buzzing night scene, and right know. in Belgium. It's just those Belgium. Belgians. That's right. You know, great waffles, great nightlife. What are you going to do? <laughs> isn't that a, that's very? Isn't that a very American that we always latch on to like the food from that place? <laughs> well, I was thinking of a Belgian ale. So there you go. Oh, yeah, there the you alcohol go. Alcohol exactly. too. That's right. <laughs> it's like Britain. You people just eat mutton over there, don't they? That's, that's right. That's all you do over Except there. Is the, mutton. The, what is it? The British breakfast or something? The morning. Yeah. 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 English breakfast. That's it. English breakfast. That's heavy. That's heavy that's duty, heavies. man. Yeah. If you've ever, or even scotch eggs, not to mm-hmm. to go a little bit north, but have a scotch egg or two for breakfast and see how that sits on your stomach. Yeah. Well, that's breakfast, lunch, probably yeah, dinner it, too. It tops you off. That's, uh, I think it was uh, No Reservations with Anthony Bourdain. That that's drunk food. That's what you eat at two o'clock in the morning after the bar. It's the only place place. I've ever had them is at a bar. So right, exactly. It almost lets you know, like off the bat, this is not for like cultured sober people. This is food that was invented (laughs) for drunken revelers. Well, it's kind of two o'clock in the morning. It's it's kind of like in England, uh, the bar food is is curry, uh, but it's like an English curry. They you know it doesn't Mm -hmm. really resemble anything you would have uh, in India. But uh, it's, like, it's it's just bar food. You just it is. It's like poutine, mm-hmm. kind of. Yeah. When, when Annie was pregnant here last year, that was her favorite pregnant food with Guido was poutine. And we have a smokehouse that serves poutine as a side uh, side dish or an appetizer. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not a it's not an appetizer size either. Yeah, it's the it's, appetizer. It's the entree. Right. It probably covers dessert too. The fact that she's eating for two people should give you a good idea that. Of the size of the portions. It was just right nice. for a pregnant woman. Yeah. But uh, I digress. And uh, let's... Uh, oh, yeah. The other thing. I Erasmus. I, right. Erasmus. That's right. Um, De servo arbitrio. Bondage of the will. December 1525. That's how we're going... How Overman's going to approach this. So we're on page 211 of Life Between God and the Devil. The Reformation in Peril section of Overman's book, page 211, Luther and Enlightened Humanism. In De Servo Arbitrio, Bondage of the Will, December 1525, his polemical tract against Erasmus. I should note too, 
just as a setup, I don't know, I can't remember if Orman does this or not, but Luther didn't want to respond to Erasmus. He was busy, and he didn't actually think that what Erasmus had written, which was entitled On the Freedom of the Will, was worth replying to. Hmm. Instead, he did what so many academics did, which is during his lectures on Ecclesiastes, he just took that as an opportunity to shred Erasmus yeah. from the lectern in his classrooms and use Erasmus as a point of comparison to his own lectures on the Bible, mm-hmm. kind of a counterpoint. To warn his students, don't be like Erasmus. I would say like a whipping boy or... A, yeah, a whipping boy, a, not, a not straw quite man. A, yeah, <laughs> maybe not quite a straw man since he was legit. He wasn't fake. He was quoting him. He was quoting Erasmus. Right. But, um, and the reason is that Erasmus was called the Prince of the Humanists. He was an inspiration and considered a de facto leader of... There, well, there's no such thing as humanism as a monolithic movement. There were there's Belgian humanism, Italian humanism, French humanism. It's every area, every re- there's there's Southern Belgian humanism and then Northern Belgian humanism. There's all these different movements. Well, it broad, wasn't, broadly speaking, what what do we mean by humanist? I knew you were going to ask me that question. Test me this morning. Um, so what do you, humanism? I'm engaged here, man. Come on. There we go. As the name suggests, it is a it is to dig into the humanities, as we would call it. Ah, so and it's not like uh, high anthropology like we've talked about before. It is high anthropology because you do believe in the inherent goodness of human beings. And as Erasmus would argue, that essentially to be a Christian is to cooperate with God in your salvation or for God to give you the tools and strengthen you to participate in your salvation. One example he uses in the freedom of the will is that God is like a father who's trying to teach his son to walk. And so he puts an apple on a chair. And now the father could pick up the child and carry him over to the chair. And Mm -hmm. then the child would grasp the apple, but the child would not have worked for the apple and he would not have any appreciation or gratitude for the apple then. Versus what God does is he puts the apple on the chair and then he encourages us to stand up and walk to the chair. Uh, So he's the prime mover, as they might say. Exactly. And yeah, if we fall down, he'll help stand us back up again. But ultimately, we have to be the one that gets to the chair and grabs the apple. Right. And like a parent helping a child to walk, we would put our hands under the child's armpits for stability, but yet we're not carrying the child across the floor, forcing the child to walk but rather we're just there for support. And another example Erasmus uses is of a captain trying to pilot a ship through a storm to safe harbor. That God gives him the lighthouse. He gives him the strength and the wisdom to to navigate to shore, but that ultimately the captain still has to do the work. He's cooperating with God basically and bringing the ship to shore and then gives thanks to God and is grateful to God for the lighthouse and the strength and the wisdom and everything that he gives him. Um, and so for Erasmus, that's what he means by like a free will as far as Christians go is. And it's even modern Roman Catholic scholars have noted that Erasmus does not represent late medieval Catholicism. He's not Orthodox mm. because he's humanist and he has a high anthropology. As you noted, he does believe inherently or accept that the Bible teaches that human beings have a capacity for good in relation to their salvation. Right. So classical humanism, according to uh the profound source of Wikipedia, is a, a philosophical and ethical stance that emphasizes the value and agency of human beings individually and collectively and generally prefers critical thinking and evidence, rationalism and appearancism, over acceptance of dogma or superstition. Mm-hmm. It's primarily a moral movement because it is an attempt... Modern humanism is different. Yes, very much so. Because it's, it's more what we might call secularism, a non-religious... Yeah. Uh, 
kind of approach, non-theistic mm-hmm. approach to life. Right, non-theistic. It, and still, though, at its root, positivistic, very positive about human abilities and human potential, right. um, grounded in Greco-Roman philosophy, but that it is primarily a moral movement. And today, American... Today. Yeah. And well, even for Erasmus, if you read Erasmus and you read Luther's response to Erasmus, what Erasmus is primarily attempting in on the freedom of the will is he, and he even says this, which is wild, but he essentially just says that human beings, pe- normal people, not clergy or rulers, but normal people are essentially no better than animals. They're basically pigs. And mm. they need someone to um, order and direct them. They need a leader. And the reason is because left to themselves, they'll just wallow in mud. They'll just go off the rails and become immoral mm. and unethical and lascivious and give in to the concupiscence, all that stuff. And so really the reason Erasmus argues for a free, you know, something of a free will is because of human responsibility. There must be responsibility. And that's why he and Luther get into this then ultimately is because things like God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Or Jacob, I have loved, but Esau I have hated. When Erasmus reads those texts, he has to figure out why would God damn someone mm. who had no opportunity to repent? Or, you know, that's not a just God, according to Erasmus. It's not moral. And Luther's response then is essentially God's not moral, <laughs> according to your standards. Like that being like God, knowing good and evil, doesn't make us God. Yeah. And it, it doesn't mean that just because we know what good and evil is that we are capable then of distinguishing good and evil in the way that God does. And he does this at Heidelberg, right? That in Heidelberg, he says what we usually call mortal sin, God calls good. And what we call good, God usually calls a mortal sin. Hmm. Because it's that kind of upside down backwardsness of the old Adam versus divinity. Yeah, and it's not purely dogma in a sense of um, just a, a tradition, mm-hmm. a church tradition, but it, mm-hmm. but it is actually, here's what the Bible confesses, right? Right. That's what it gives right. us to say. And so for Erasmus, he does what's considered in the, you know, today we would consider it a word study or a topical study of the Bible. That's how he studies the Bible. That's mm-hmm. how he does exegesis. So what Erasmus does is he goes free will. He writes that at the top of the page and then he draws a line down the middle of the paper. And on the left side, he puts down all the verses that support free will. And then he writes down all the verses that deny free will. And whichever column is longest, that's the teaching. That's the predominant teaching then. That's the predominant teaching. And if there are things that oppose free will then, it's not because the Bible says that we don't have any free will in regards to our salvation, but rather it's just we're confused or the text itself is confused. Oh, I see. And that was a big part of humanism too, remember, the ad fontes, go back to the source. Right, and I was going to say that, that there are aspects of humanism, not the moral philosophy aspect, mm-hmm. but uh, maybe you know the, the approach to grammar and rhetoric, uh, history, Correct. poetry, all right. the antiquity, study of great books, mm-hmm. that that I mean, the, the reformers pick up Melanchthon, especially with the Latin right. school, but but Luther too. I mean, he knows he knows uh, the classic myths, for example, and he uses those mm-hmm. as illustrations. Right, um, exactly. That well, Melanchthon considered Erasmus his mentor. Mm. He says this in 1525. He chose Erasmus's side over and against Luther in this debate, which is really the rift that caused a lot of the conflict in Wittenberg then. Beginning on the of the end, as they say. That was literally the beginning of the end of them. Because as Erasmus, or as Melanchthon said during his eulogy at uh, Luther, is that early on when he was at Wittenberg, he was 17 when he started teaching at Wittenberg. 18 years old. He was he was a young whippersnapper, and he complained in his eulogy of Luther that the power of Luther's personality cowed him too much early hmm. on. 
Hmm. He kind of bowed to Luther's personality because he was so powerful, so charismatic. And then as he grew and matured, he started standing on his own feet. And yeah, 1525, 1526, that's really when this rift develops. To the point that Frederick the Wise, during the antinomian debates between Luther, Melanchthon, and Agricola, Frederick had to threaten them. He threatened to shut down the university if Melanchthon and Luther didn't get on the same page. Wow. Because he said, you guys can't be arguing like this in public. We have way too many enemies, and we're trying to do too much for the for Germany, especially to reform the church, for the faculty that's running point on all of these things to be arguing with each other in public. Well, maybe, uh, yeah, if you haven't been a part of a higher education staff meeting, I mean, I guess maybe you don't have a standard reference. That probably happens. It is, <laughs> it, yeah, it's like a bunch of pubescent children throwing food at each other. So, you know, when the regents <laughs> come down the pipe, they generally don't yep. get involved, but when the regents show up, then you know you're in trouble. Right, exactly. And so there's a lot of history behind the bondage of the will, the debate in 1525, and bringing it back around to Luther. Well, and Erasmus also, technically speaking, publishes the first Greek New Testament right? that's widely available. We say a critical that. edition, right? Where it's compiled. Technically, it's critical. Things. He beat a Spaniard, or technically with a critical edition. There's a Spaniard who published a Greek New Testament about a year or two before Erasmus, okay. uh, but it wasn't widely accepted. And uh, one of Luther's critiques and one of the reasons that Luther eventually developed a very negative opinion of Erasmus was that as Luther was working through Erasmus's Greek New Testament, he discovered that wherever there was a gap in the Greek, Erasmus just substituted in the Vulgate and didn't tell anybody. There was Oops. no critic apparatus for it. And Luther found this to be very unethical, ironically, uh, but also it's just not helpful because the Vulgate and the Greek New Testament, they vary widely from each other at certain points. Yeah, so semi-critical, we'd say. He didn't have mm-hmm. um, access to a substantial number of manuscripts, right? Right. Yeah. And, I mean, again, that's the genius of guys like Erasmus and Luther, is that with what they had available to them, they were able to not only memorize Scripture in Hebrew and Greek and Latin, and but also then they could be text-critical. Mm-hmm. And do it in such a way that even today, all these hundreds of years later, they were right. Yeah. Like they could read a text and go, yeah, he didn't say that. He, he wouldn't have said that. That's not his theology. That's not the way he talks. Because they not only memorized in the sense of how Paul, for example, would express an idea. They knew profoundly how Paul, like how Paul thought right, in his not- logic and his rhetoric. But also then they could say in the Greek, Paul would never use this sentence or this clause. <clears throat> this is not right. And then go back and go, yeah, this is the Vulgate translation of this. Well, now we need computers to help us do that, right? Right. All the statistical exactly. analysis as to how often a certain phrase is used in the text. Well, it's like when you as a pastor are confronted by someone who has a Strong's concordance. And it's the same thing. They look up a word in Strong's and go, well, this is what it says. Yeah, but you can't read Greek. You don't know the context. You don't understand grammar you did you can't just pull words out of the bible and look up the definition and go that's what this means mm. everywhere it means this everywhere because yeah. you and i know greek there are greek words that have 14 definitions right and they'll have like in tdnt what is that i don't remember what that stands for yeah uh it's 14 volume uh, right you know words word dictionary basically and uh, the theological workbook word book of the new Testament. theological dictionary of the new testament that's that's it yeah 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 Uh, but it's not just new testament because it'll go back and it'll do hebrew it'll do greek you know septuagint it'll do outside usage it's it's comprehensive and there are some words in there that'll have 15 20 pages Mm -hmm. trying to help you find the definition (laughs) that's appropriate 
Mine are uh, stacked up next to the copier at church, and they are as tall as the copy machine. That's how many uh, volumes there I are. I do it electronically, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> exactly. We can do it electronically. We don't have to think anymore. Mm. So, uh, and then to your earlier point, to bring this back around, uh, early on in the Reformation, so to speak, the humanists and the Lutherans were grouped together as one block. Mm. And the reason that Erasmus writes on the freedom of or I'm sorry, on the freedom of the will, is to distinguish and separate himself from Luther because the Pope, Henry VIII, and the emperor, who he was all close with, said, are you in bed with the reformers? Are you in bed with Luther? I would say they were, they were tight. Yeah. yeah, are you guys tight with each other? And so he wrote that because, one, he thought it was a completely innocuous, irrelevant theological topic, free will. No one cares. It's an academic debate. He himself says this is the type of stuff that should be kept behind the walls of academia. Ivory Tower theology, as we yeah, call it. Yeah, never, never teach this stuff to lay people because, well, for Erasmus, again, because he's a moralist, you don't want to let people know they have too much free will because what are they going to do with their freedom? Hmm sin yeah and so as you know as i know guess what lutherans of every stripe and christians of every stripe still have this argument today yeah you're free in christ oh free to sin and so what do we what's the pushback when you talk about freedom well we got to preach more obedience we got to preach more law we have to have more exhortation why because if people are given too much freedom or made aware that they're free they're going to use their freedom to sin Right. But as we've talked about, that's a fundamental denial of what the Bible teaches about the purpose of the law and exactly. what the law has, will do, right? Right. Well, it's like they quote Paul in Romans 7, shall we sin that grace may abound? He, that's a rhetorical question. He's not actually saying to the Romans, I know that you're sinning so that grace may abound. If you follow the argument from chapter 5 forward or even chapter 6, what's he doing? He's setting up a, a rhetorical argument. He's asking questions in order to set up, because he, what does he do? He assumes the question, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. And says, I know what you're going to say. Paul's basically saying you're dead to sin now so that you're alive to Christ. So you're free. Oh, free to do what? Free to sin that grace may abound? Is that what you're saying? Because Jesus loves the ungodly. The more ungodly I am, the more he will love me. And Paul says what? Double negative in the Greek. Absolutely not never. Mm. But he says, what happened? Sin <laughs> right. sin took opportunity used the law to kill me and now i'm dead right and then you have the argument in galatians about um the law being given to in you know increase trespasses increase the trespasses exactly <laughs> you're like oh so wait a minute i mean i've i've talked to like day school teachers about that lutheran teachers okay so you want to preach the ten commandments and that's going to be the center of your teaching do you understand that that's not going to make your classroom better <laughs> at least according you're to the bible right. it's actually going to make more difficult um because now, especially like, say, for example, you've got these prepubescent, you know, teenagers here, you know, are going to be teenagers and you start talking Sixth Commandment and you give them all sorts of ideas. Like, mm, that right. was really wise. Right. <laughs> but Whatever I mean, you do, don't do, do not this. do these yeah. six things that I'm about to explain to you. <laughs> exactly how to do them and what they look like. Yes. That's right. And so you, what ends up happening, then this is for Erasmus, this is really the way Erasmus understands preaching and teaching, especially for laity, is we need to preach the law because the law, like you said, actually points out where we sin and mm. where we're disobedient. And therefore, that creates this counterpoint to obedience. This is how you're disobedient, so this is how you're obedient. And then you want to keep people in a state of fear and insecurity. And this should be this should sound familiar because this is coming out of the late medieval penitential system. Yep. Is that you don't want people to be free. And you don't want people to have comfort or confidence in the gospel, especially. 
because fear and insecurity keeps them on the treadmill of penance and the treadmill of penance keeps them obedient and obedience keeps them coming to church. It keeps them offering their alms. It keeps them coming to the confessional booth. It keeps everybody in line. Sounds like socialism. <laughs> huh, funny. And uh, and so obviously then when Erasmus comes out and he posits these things in his treatise on the freedom of the will, and Luther doesn't want to respond because he doesn't think it's important. It's He didn't even read it right away when he got it, mm. even though Melanchthon kept bothering him. And then Bugenhagen and all these people kept bothering Luther to read it and respond to it because of all this pressure from humanist friends that they all had. And it was actually Katie then finally that told Luther to write it because once they figured out that they couldn't get through to Luther, all of his friends and colleagues started pressuring her. Hey, can you talk to Martin? <laughs> it's interesting because it seems to be a parallel to what was going on with Luther um, with this kind of new, what do you want to say, new uh, philosophical movement, I guess, mm-hmm. in the, around the world, um, yeah. to like what we call today the intellectual dark web, you know, and this, right. it's, it's kind of a revival of humanism, really, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And, and you see all these guys need to respond to each other and, yeah. you know, there's kind of- Yeah, a, it is kind of enlightened. It really, I mean, especially a guy like Jordan Peterson, that's enlightenment humanism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The sovereignty of the individual as agent, yeah. personal responsibility, that kind of stuff. That's all enlightenment humanism. You can get your life back together again. And there's right. wisdom in the ancients. And we can listen right. to to history and uh, mythology. We can find right. resources yeah. from within our own, <laughs> within ourselves, right. really. No, that's a good point. Guys like Sam Harris, guys like the Weinsteins, even Joe Rogan. It's go back and read the original authors. Go back and read Marx. Mm-hmm. Go back and read Solzhenitsyn. Go back and read the original text so that you actually know what socialism is or what Marxism is. Go back and read Solzhenitsyn to see the consequences of yeah. social. But even more programs. so, they, they're a heavy emphasis on dialogue, right? Right. Um, so you do a podcast, Free I do a podcast ideas. to respond. You you have what's well, mostly podcasts or, or YouTube video. Then there's YouTube video responses. Right. And it becomes this like, very much a similar kind of dialogue as Luther and Erasmus writing back and forth yeah. to each other. Well, know? it's such a great platform because books took years to, you know, in the early 20th century, that's how you did the debate was through books. I wrote mm-hmm. a book, then you responded to my book, but that's years. Yeah. Then in, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it became journals. We responded to each other through articles. But again, like I've said before, even Walther, uh, CFW Walther does this in journals when he's debating different things with right. people. But it takes months to respond. It, it does. It takes months versus... And then the limitations of uh, radio and TV as far as, one, it's a closed system, so you actually have to know somebody to get on the radio or the TV. Right. And then production and, cost was very high. Right. And you got a segment that, may, you know, if you were really good, you got seven minutes. Yeah. You couldn't do long form Response. No, there was no long form, and therefore, there was no actual exchange of, like, legitimate exchange of ideas. There was no thought. It was just get on, promote what you're there to promote, and then get off. Marketeering, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Versus now, like you said, with podcasts, you can do a three-hour podcast, and then somebody else can do a three-hour podcast. And maybe you get together, you rent out a theater and get together in person mm-hmm. and sell tickets to it, like uh, Sam Harrison and uh, Jordan Peterson did when they debated truth. And it's it's a... I think actually Jordan Peterson said that podcasting is essentially the Gutenberg printing press for um, disseminating information. Right. In the same way that the Gutenberg printing press allowed the free dissemination of information on a scale unheard of before that, which is really why Luther was so successful as a reformer because of the printing press. He could get his ideas out to every corner of the world if he wanted to. 
Likewise, with podcasts, it's the same thing. When you listen to this podcast, whether it's three hours, two hours, hour and a half, you're getting our thoughts in real time. Mm-hmm. And it's it's an ongoing conversation that you can jump in and out of. Right. And there's not, you know, paper costs, I guess, were, were a big deal in, in Luther's day. But but today, sure. I mean, the cost, storage costs are are mm-hmm. infinite, infinitesimally small. So you know, right. we can do a three-hour show and it, you can... Download it on your phone in seconds, right? Right. Um, right. And so we're we're just not we don't need to editorialize. We don't need to abbreviate. We don't have to consolidate. Um, right. We can <laughs> we can do this kind of um, you know freewheeling conversation, I suppose. Well, in a certain sense, and especially in the present tense, um, this form allows a counterpoint to the idiocracy that's currently going on. Yeah, no doubt. And just the complete lack of critical thinking and dialogue in our culture. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you can be shut down on social media. You can be shut down in public, but you can get it. If you have a laptop or you have a phone with a microphone on it, you can record a podcast and upload it Yeah, in no time. As it's long all, as you don't do anything illegal, you're all, right. you're, you're all good. Right, exactly. So that's the point then that the reason that Luther does respond to Erasmus and the reason that this becomes a big deal is because, well he's pressured into it by Katie mm-hmm. because she wants all of his colleagues to get off her back and leave her alone. So she, and they just got married, by the way, remember they had just gotten married that year. Oh, wow. They got married in 1525. So again, she's saying, oops, sorry, banged my microphone. Um, she said, listen, I got a house to take care of. I got things to take. I got the black cloister. I've essentially got a dormitory to run here and a bed and breakfast and hmm. you need to respond. And so Luther actually, I think, if I remember right, you can check this in Brecht's biography of Luther. I think he only spent three months writing this. That's Beginning incredible. to end, he only spent three months on it. That's incredible. It is incredible because he said it's the best thing I've ever written outside the catechisms or catechism, large catechism. Yeah, you know that whether it's preaching, teaching, something you write, uh, you know, blog post, mm-hmm. uh, when it's in the midst of a challenge, right? Yeah. Or a difficulty or, you know, a really heavy idea or whatever, um, you know, you, you're not going to be as, what do you want to say, um, whimsical, or you'll be more careful about what you're saying. But you're also right. there's like a crucible effect there. It kind of burns away mm-hmm. all of the all the other ideas in your head, and you yeah. you have to kind of get down to brass tacks, get down to the point, and make well, it clear. And this is the point too. This is to as a point of comparison, not to comp- say I'm equal to by any way, shape, or form. But everybody knows who works with me that if you ask me to speak on a topic, I'm going to speak on election. That's my. That's what I do. I speak on the third article of the Creed and Election. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't matter what the topic is. That's where I go. Uh, I either begin there or I end there or everything in between. And, and that's the reason why you fit in the Missouri Senate so well, because it's the only controversy we seem to have. Essentially, from, it is, actually. <laughs> from, the, from the get-go, it's, it's the first major. It was on the doctrine of election back in It was, and I have the original documents from Concordia Publishing, or from Concordia Historical Society on that debate between Walther and others on this whole matter of election. Right, and it keeps coming back. Um, it does. Whether it's what you're talking about, even in, in recent times, like church growth mm-hmm. and our rejection right. of kind of church growth philosophies. Well, it's really right. a question about election and the role of the it will. It really and, is. Yeah. Is there such a thing as a seeker-friendly service? Mm-hmm. No, actually, according to Romans 2, there's not because no one seeks God. Exactly. Yeah. So, it's, period. That's <laughs> so the end you, of the conversation. So you, do, you fit in well. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> but my point is that 
Erasmus picks the freedom of the will because he thinks it's an academic argument and no one cares. Uh-huh. And he writes and he writes the treatise in Latin so that only educated people can read it. Mm. Luther goes, actually, the whole matter of free will and election is the foundation of the doctrine of justification and the church. Because it like, undermines original sin. The doctrine right. of original sin undermines the doctrine of yeah. Christ and, and certainly And so Luther says, Erasmus, you've chosen a topic on which the entirety of dogma hinges. Like literally everything hinges on this one topic. That's what we call stepping into it. (laughs) Right. And so Luther, instead of, like Melanchthon assures everybody it's going to be a polite academic debate between these two minds, these two giant lights in in the Reformation. But Luther is so well-versed, like you said, he's so grounded in this, this topic because he does believe this is like the topic out of which everything else springs, that he just beats the living hell out of Erasmus in this response mm-hmm. to the point that Erasmus's response to Luther's response was over 800 pages. Yeah. And if you have ever used the Luther insult generator, which I'll yeah, link, link right. up in the show notes, I, I'm convinced that probably a good third maybe of the insults are, are from Ponders to the Will. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and to the point then, Luther publishes it in German. So everybody can read it's it. It's that important. So everyone can read his response to Erasmus, but not everybody can read Erasmus because wow. it's Latin. So to this day, then, there's the Rup edition that has Luther's response. And then there's the Packer-Johnston edition, which has both, I believe. It's oh, either, does it's it? I either reverse those. One of those has both. And I can't remember if it's Packer and Johnston that has both or if it's Rup that has both. Maybe it's Rup. Huh. Yeah, maybe it's Rup. That's the Christian Classics Library edition. Ichthus edition. Yeah, I think maybe it was Rupe that had both. Huh. Packer and Johnston has the better translation, I think, readably, but I think Rupe has the whole thing. I don't have that edition, so. One or the other. But nonetheless, if you're going to if you're gonna read this, I highly recommend getting Erasmus and reading that first because he is the OG of evangelical Protestantism. Hmm. Whether they know it or not, right? Yeah, that as one, maybe it was Obermann who said it, but Luther may have won the debate, but Erasmus won the war. Hmm. That Luther, we've talked about this before, I think, on this show. People think that Luther was this monolithic figure that changed the course of the church forever. And in a certain sense, yes, he did. But if you look at even his own colleagues after his death and the trajectory of the Lutheran church, even before Luther's death, a big part of the Lutheran project is to reverse what Luther said on justification. And like you pointed out, to this day, most people I meet who find out that The Bondage of the Will is my favorite work by Luther will like wrinkle their nose. Yeah, well, and they and your emphasis maybe on the third article of the Creed from the Small Catechism mm-hmm. especially. Yeah. Um, it's amazing to me how often that's not known or remembered. Like, right. Did you... Well, maybe in your catechesis, you know, because you spent so much time right. with the Ten Commandments, you just didn't get to the creed. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> there's that. Mm, but, but that's really the point. If you read the large catechism on the third article, that's a summary of the bondage of the will. Mm. It really is Luther's summary of the bondage of the will yeah. for laity. And that's why our beloved Dr. Norman Nagel says if you're going to teach the creed, you have to start in the third article. Mm. And work backwards because it's the Holy Spirit who opens up and reveals Jesus to us as God and Savior. And it's Jesus who opens up and reveals the Father or God to us as Father. Right. And what kind of God as Father do you get if you only understand him in relation to the first article? Without right. the second and the third, you you have basically a divine creator, you know, mm-hmm. 
Who gives some people some things and doesn't give other people other things. Kind of capriciously and... Right. Yeah. It's kind of arbitrary. Yeah. And yeah, you end up... I think if you start with the first article, you it's easy to end up with double predestination. Yeah. Versus starting with the third article and the gifts of election, it's the Holy Spirit who preaches the gospel, enlightens us with his gifts, sanctifies and keeps us in the true faith. Boom. Done. Who is chosen? Well, have you heard the gospel? Mm-hmm. Then you must be chosen. Yeah. Did you receive the Lord's Supper? Are you baptized? Have you received the forgiveness of sin? Then you're sanctified. Well, the other aspect of first article alone is that pretty much all you can work with is um, the natural law, right? The law that's written right. upon our hearts. Right. Which law of nature. The law of nature, which we've talked about, I think, on this show, if we have Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, Na- it, nature is metal. It, it does not lead one to salvation or to a place of hopefulness right. or joy or uh, any kind of delight in this world. Well, I, that's a great, I was thinking about this the other night cause I was actually, we were joking at jujitsu about um, the law of nature mm-hmm. that when new students come into the gym, we all fight with each other to see who's going to get them first. Yeah. We all volunteer. I'll help. I'll help because it's like that gif of the little girl on the dock. And then the sea lion comes up, grabs her and pulls her down into the water as the family standing there going, Oh, let's feed the sea lions. They're so cute. And then the sea lion's like, I choose the girl and then sucks her into the water and they jump in after her. But, um, that sounds horrible. Well, I was ta- well that's terrifying. I mean, obviously that's terrifying, but that's the law of nature. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think, and this is just, I'm just thinking out loud about this more of a thought experiment, but calling it natural law, I think again, it, it, it it leads us back to Aristotle and Plato and the philosophers. And we treat it again, abstractly mm-hmm. in a kind of yeah. generalized sense versus the law of nature. It's abstract philosophy that ends up being doctrine, right? Right. It gets mixed in with doctrine, even though Luther, again, in 1517 disputation against classic theology says you can't be a theologian unless you do it apart from Aristotle. Mm. Whereas we again, ignore Luther and try and smuggle Aristotle back in because we like the scholastics because it's nice and neat and orderly. And, and, they, it, and that's the humanist venture. I mean, that's, that, it is that's everything's similar. again, the moral philosophy of Erasmus is everything needs to have right angles. <laughs> let's go. Let's get this stuff straightened out because the Greeks were right after all. Exactly. Right. And, but if you go law of nature, especially for, for myself anyways, I grew up in the woods, I grew up hunting and fishing. That's, you go out in the woods, there is literally a law of nature. The law of nature is if you don't know where you're going and you get lost, you will die out there in the woods. Uh, If you encounter something bigger than you, that's a predator, you will die because they will attack you. So forth and so on. That's the law of nature. And I almost feel like because we say natural law instead of law of nature, and we kind of just play fast and loose. It gives us, like you said, this high anthropology, this false sense of ourself mm. in relation to the world, rather than understanding we're in the world, we're part of the world, we're creatures, we're not separate from the world, and the law of nature applies to us too. Yeah, it's, it's like the yeah. those two bikers, right? That this recently happened. Uh, mm. For those of you listening in the future, there was a couple who decided to prove that people are naturally good, and so they went on a year-long bike trip around the world with some other people. And in order to prove that ISIS, for example, are, are not bad people and that this is all propaganda, they decided to bike through ISIS country. I think it was like Turkestan or one of those stands. And um, they were stabbed to death. And ISIS made a video and made sure that everybody knew we did this. Wow. Because their high anthropology was a rejection of reality. Mm-hmm. And then reality crashed in on them. That's the law of nature. Yeah. It's eat or be eaten, right? Mm-hmm. Life gives way to life. Eat or be eaten. Apex predators. There's a hierarchy in nature. Mm-hmm. 
And that's the way it is. <clears throat> Again, I was watching a, a short clip on Instagram of a, a sea lion jumps in this guy's boat. And the guy's freaking out. He's trying to kick the sea lion off the boat. And the sea lion's fighting with him, trying to like dodge and whatever. And then the guy with the camera pans around and it turns out there's two orca whales right next to the boat. And the sea lion's like, you can kick me in the head all you want. I'm not going back in the water, Jack. <laughs> like, yeah, I'd rather get kicked in the head than be lunch. Wow. And it's like, that's the law of nature. That's nature. And you don't have to like it and you can disagree with it and you can deny it, but that doesn't change reality. Mm -hmm. That the law of nature is what it means to live in a fallen sinful creation. So you start with the first article of the creed and then try and figure your way into the third article of the creed by way of the spiritual gifts, capital S spiritual gifts. And what do you end up with? Well, like we said, <clears throat> you start judging even the church and the gifts of the church by way of the first article. Right. How has God blessed you? Or as one person said, well, I see, I find the gospel in the first article because it says we should thank, praise, serve, and obey him. Whoa. Well, should doesn't equal can. Should doesn't equal can. That's Immanuel Kant. That's not, that's just because should, e you, just because you think should equals can doesn't make it so. I mean, there's, gift, there's gift in the first article, but like you say, apart from through Jesus Christ, our Lord, there, there's no way of knowing whether it's, it truly is gift, right? And as Jesus himself says, God causes the rain and, or the sun and the rain to fall on both the good and the evil alike. Yeah. It's not a particular Christian gift, if you like. Right. Know, a gift that That's why he says Christ. should. And one of the parts, uh, one of the points of Luther's argument against Erasmus is that Erasmus believes that ought equals can. You should equals you can. Mm. Versus Luther who says, no, we know we should keep the law and we know the law is good and we know that we should do good, but we don't. Yeah. Should, should does not imply agency, ability. Right. Yeah. But for Erasmus, for Julian of Eclanum, when he debates with Augustine on this topic in the 300s, same thing. Odd equals can. God wouldn't command the impossible. Right. Because that would be, I mean, what kind of God is that that would tell you to do right. something that you can't possibly do? Right. And this is why, to the present tense, as we've been noting, most people, when they get into the bondage of the will, reject it because Erasmus won the argument. He won the war. Yeah, and they probably get a little hung up in the uh, opening chapters. <laughs> on, yeah, well, once you, yeah, the opening chapter is on the clarity of Scripture. Right. And, and Luther takes such an opposite. Again, for Erasmus, the point of Scripture is basic instructions before leaving earth. B-I-B-L-E. Mm -hmm. For Luther, the point of the Bible is Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. so they have two different starting points. Right. But it, but his uh, rhetorical method is is very much nonlinear. It's very cyclical. And um, it's like, when, Luther, when are you going to get to the point here? Which, of course, he does. But uh, it's a big setup. So <laughs> It's a big setup. So, and I'll end with this too, <clears throat> that for Erasmus, he begins with you have certain freedom. Mm. And then he works his way towards binding you within that. Luther starts from the perspective of we are in bondage to sin and death and cannot free ourselves, and he works towards freeing us. Mm. So they're working in opposite directions. Therefore, there can be no compromise because they're thinking categorically. Rasmus assumes that we're basically free people, and then we need boundary, boundaries so that we don't sin. So again, Rasmus is thinking morally. How do we control the population and keep them safe from themselves and yeah. each other? Luther starts from the perspective of we're slaves to sin and the devil, and the purpose of the Bible, the purpose of preaching, the purpose of theology is to set you free to love and serve your neighbor. I mean, there's there's a presupposition in both cases. Erasmus is coming right. from uh, from moral philosophy. Luther is coming from the, what the scriptures say about our will. Right. Right. So, Erasmus is an academic. Mm -hmm. He doesn't hear confessions. Luther is pastoral. He hears confessions. He's teaching students to be 
pastors. He's teaching people to be theologians of the church, whereas Erasmus is a public academic. He's a philosopher primarily. And that's what he calls what he's doing. He calls it a philosophy of Christ, a Christian philosophy. He calls what he does Christian philosophy. It's like Christian and science. Think, <laughs> yeah. And so for the humanists who are Christians, that's kind of how they would identify what they're doing. It's, it's a Christian philosophy because it's primarily focused on morality, moralism. Well, and not necessarily think, on Jesus. And just thinking about it, I mean, it is the, like you said, the predominant view of the Christian religious landscape is that is that man has agency and we're inherently good and we're just working at being better. Right. right. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Be nice. You're a good person. God loves you the way you are. Believe in God. Mm-hmm. And, it's essentially moralistic. And you'll and you'll feel better. And and you will feel better because God is happy with you. But the, yeah, the root of moralistic therapeutic deism is moralism, hey. because like you said, it really does come out of secular humanism. So that's where we're at then with this entering into December of 1525, Luther fires off his response to get people off his back, even though he's not really in the mood for it and mm. doesn't really have a lot of respect or regard for Luther. In fact, he actually, I think, refers to Erasmus as kind of a, a B squad, not an A squad kind of theologian. Yeah. And all and sorts of has, other names, too. And all other things. He absolves Erasmus at one point in the bondage of the will. It says, I forgive you. <laughs> it's very pastoral. So 211, Lutheran Enlightened Humanism. In De Servo Arbitrio, bondage of the will, December 1525. His polemical tract against Erasmus and, quote-unquote, modern men of all eras. And this is really the key point, is that of all of the works of theology throughout church history, the bondage of the will is... I don't want to say an attack, but it is definitely a critic critique of theologians in every generation hmm. who want to make room for the human a- human agency, like you mm-hmm. pointed yeah. out. Yeah. And so this really is then against modern men of all eras, not just Erasmus. Luther took up and emphasized the subject of the distant and the present God. So in Hebrew, that would be God. That's the that's the term that the Hebrews would use for the distant one, God or Yahweh. Mm-hmm. But Lord is an expression of intimacy, right? And present. So when God is present, like for in the Psalms, for example, in the Psalms, when the psalmist wants to emphasize the intimate closeness of God, he says Lord or Yahweh. Actually, Lord is Yahweh. I'm sorry, Adonai. And then <laughs> Adonai, right? And then if he wants to emphasize the distance of God, the unreachableness of God, the incomprehensibleness of God, he says. God, Elohim, Adonai, however you want to say that. And then when he wants to emphasize both, he will say what? God and Lord or Lord God. Yeah. And so this is what Luther is after then is that there is a distant God and a present God, a hidden God and a revealed God. And they are one and the same. God where he chooses to be preached, revealed and worshiped in Christ. And God where he does not choose to be preached, revealed and worshiped outside of Christ. Right. So like we were just talking about, um, you know, the God of nature is the Mm -hmm. one that's obvious to us it's it doesn't need right. to be revealed to us in the scriptures because we can no. we can see and experience it but right. it's not the kind of god you want to meet <laughs> no not really no. no no because he's not present right he's he's distant um but also like you said it, it seems his judgment is capricious or yeah. vindictive at times or right just frankly just flat out evil right well a friend of mine last night we were talking he has a friend uh who he he lives in northeastern Canada, and he's a seal clubber. That's what he does because it pays really well. You can do he, that for money. 
Yeah, you can. And but he was he was telling me this because his friend was just complaining that it's getting more and more difficult to find seals, especially white seals, because of the population kind of shrinking and they're moving further out on the ice flow. So this guy goes out with a couple hunting buddies and they have their clubs and they follow these seals across these ice flows. And they'll track them for months across the ice flow. And I asked, well, what about polar bears? And he said, yeah, that's a very real danger. They're out there. I'm like, what? I'm like, so you 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 track a baby seal for months just so you can beat it to death and then sell the pelt? He's like, you get a lot of money for that pelt. I'm like, yeah, I don't think it's worth it. I don't think it's worth it because you're out there on the ice flow. It's a different way of life. <laughs> it is definitely a different way of life. But like you said, the God of, of nature, uh, you look at that, that scenario, three or four guys out there jumping ice flows, jumping right. from chunk to chunk trying to find a baby seal or a seal to club and all the while there's friggin um polar bears out there hunting for the same seals and polar bears are the only animal the only bear that actively hunts human beings and it's like you have a club and that's a bear that's two to three times larger than you yeah good luck with that (laughs) and they can swim under the ice and come up through the ice i'm like it's not worth it it's not worth it because that god that's out there on the ice flow distant Really, yeah. really distant. You know what else hunts for baby seals? Orca whales hunt for baby seals too. Exactly. Some some jobs just aren't worth it. Um, no. Just kind of like some places aren't worth living in. <laughs> right, exactly. Like northeastern Canada, just so you can hunt baby seals. Oh, uh, like, man, that's rough, man. That, that was like that, that, that great, uh, it was one of the... I think parts unknown episodes is Bourdain and is with the two Canadians out on the, mm-hmm. uh, oh, yes. when, they're, when they're in the, the ice fishing ice house. Ca- yes. cabin, but yes. they're having like fine wine and they had, they had packed lunch and it was <laughs> this elegant yeah. lunch. Right. And like, yeah. Two that's, professional chefs in an ice house. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, put those two worlds right up against each other. Right. Right. And so, yeah, the, the God who is distant is not the God that you want to worship because he is, like you said, capricious and he's arbitrary. Mm-hmm. And he may, the God of nature is the God who sits back and goes, let's see how this plays out. <laughs> he sits on his mountain and laughs at us. Right, exactly. That's the God of Psalm 2. Mm. God sits in the heavens and he mocks us. Right. Versus right. the God who is present, that's Jesus, the fullness of the image of God. Yeah, laughing at, you know, the princes of this world and all their the empires and schemes. And schemes and, yeah. And, yeah. So that's what Luther's taking up here then, the subject of the distant and present God. Contemplating the real tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, he, Luther, unlocked the doors to his own life history. This is another reason why the bondage of the will is so important, because it's Luther at his most Luther. Ah. This is Luther actually answering his younger self. Yeah. He's critiquing his younger self even. Yeah, what must I do to be saved kind of question. Yes, exactly, mm-hmm. which is a question of election. Mm-hmm. So he unlocked the doors to his own life history, incorporating his own experiences as a, quote, reformer in spite of himself. Yeah. While Melanchthon and I were drinking beer, God was doing the, doing the work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Scrutinizing them in the light of central passage, scriptural passages. So he's, he is putting his own life and the topic of human responsibility and God's sovereignty, and he's basically dropping it into the word of God and going, all right, scripture, tell me what you got. Yeah, let scripture exegete you. Huh. Right. Where, whereas, you know, I mean, there's a danger in, in thinking that the Bible story is really your life story, right? Right. That yeah. it's all Once about again, you. The, the hero's journey. Yeah, it's not all about you. Um, but but 
the scriptures do want you to understand yourself and the things you've experienced in light of what God has said, right? Right. He tells you how to understand um, your life experience. Yeah, this is an interesting thing. You and I have talked about this uh, at length off the air. This We have this idea, not even really an idea, we have this attitude that when we're in a relation with someone, especially someone we love, like mm. in marriage, that we somehow have ownership or possession of the other person. Mm. And therefore, when someone says, well, I want to break up, or friends drift apart, they grow apart, and the way this plays itself out is we will ask well, why won't you talk to me anymore? Or why don't you want to go out with me anymore? Or why don't you... You owe me an explanation. I'm entitled to an Mm -hmm. explanation. Justify yourself. Justify your decisions to me. As if, again, we own that person. Think of it in this terms. The father gives away the bride. Why? Because in the ancient world, she's property. (laughs) That's how it works. There's a dowry and there's the sale and the exchange of goods. There's a good and, way to understand that from Genesis, you know, that, that she right. well, leaves you her sin corrupts that exactly. father and mother and clings to her husband, but still. Right. Yeah. Right. No, there's a positive sense to this and I'll get to that too, but that think about the way that we view our relationships in terms of ownership and possession and playing these power games with each other mm. and establishing these parent-child types of dynamics, even within a relationship between adults, mm-hmm. even writ large between a pastor and his congregation. Now, apply the same attitude towards God, hmm. that we not only want to be God in God's place, the old, old Adam's project, but when we have faith, when we believe Jesus is our Savior, <laughs> we still treat him with a sense of entitlement, like we own Jesus, we possess this relationship. And to your point then, the reason that dredge this up is when we read the Bible, then the reason that we read the Bible and try and find ourselves in the Bible is because we kind of think that's the point of being a Christian, is God has basically made us his children or made us Christians. And the way that God wants us to be Christians, the way he wants us to speak and think and behave is all there in the Bible in this ancient wisdom. Hmm. And Jesus is the ultimate hero. He is the ultimate He is the ultimate example of what God wants from us. And so we we take possession of Jesus. We we think of theology in these terms too. Mm-hmm. This is my theology in a negative sense. Yeah. It's a tool, right? It beca- or right. something you know, something that you pick up and you use. Right. You know. Like exegesis. What's the purpose of exegesis? For me to mine the Bible for more information about how to be better. I think person. this passage means or means right. to me. <laughs> yeah, this is what this means to me. Well, to me, this means, and if you want to see how this really works in a really cool sense, go listen to Jordan Peterson's lectures on Genesis, hmm. where a union psychologist breaks down the archetypes in Genesis and reads it purely psychologically with some Aristotle peppered in. Is you listen to it and go, huh, that's remarkable. I'd never actually thought of that before. Uh, but there he's taking the same text and, and coming up with something dramatically, maybe even different, right? Right, which is why it's easy, I think, to listen to without a filter because it's so dramatically different. He's not even attempting to do exegesis in the way of the church. No. He's looking at it in terms of, psychologically speaking, if I were a Jungian psychoanalyst, mm-hmm. how would I read Genesis? Well, I would look for these archetypes and I would draw out these tropes that are universally true of all people. And for the purpose of helping someone overcome their psychological limitations so that they might take more personal responsibility for their life. And so this is Luther against Erasmus too, as as we were talking about, you know, what are your presuppositions? What are you coming to this topic or to the text with, the text of the scripture? And right. that is going to guide and lead, you know, 
lead you in a very particular direction. Which, exactly. Which is why in, in our tradition, we're so heavily emphasizing um, the catechesis, meaning using the small catechism and learning the mm -hmm. catechism by heart and having that in memory so that when you read something um, about election, for example, the mm -hmm. third article of the creed comes in as your framework to help right, you understand exactly. that. Exactly. Mm. And so this is, this is what Luther's getting after, is we need to put every theological topic, every personal topic, in under, under the scriptures. Mm. We literally have to understand the scriptures in this sense. Mm. We, we have to place ourselves under the word of God and let them exegete us. Which is no small task, like I said, because we want to take ownership of the Bible. We want to take ownership of God. We want to take ownership of relationships and possess them. Yeah. And so we don't see the Bible as something that we stand under, but rather something that we overlook. We use it to prove what we, the position we already hold or the exactly. behavior we're already doing. Right. Yeah. So hmm. Obermann continues, but the suspicion that personal experience dictates scriptural interpretation may be a modern prejudice. Mm, there you we're go. just talking about it. Yep. Luther may well have started from the opposite end, from listening first to scripture and then applying it in the light of daily life. So he's reading the Bible, and then as he goes about his day, he's looking for where the word of God takes shape in life. Mm-hmm. Or he's he's seeking to confess what the scriptures say, and he's like, oh, that reminds me of a story, right? Right. Yeah, he does that all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Is that he's constantly comparing things to, for example, Abraham and saying, oh, this is like Abraham's relationship with Sarah, and or this is like when Abraham was in Egypt, is he's constantly drawing back to scriptural references to, like you said, form the framework for reference in the present tense versus, well, I'm going to go out with my friends tonight and we're going to probably tie one on and have a good time. And, and what do you think, what do you think God would say about that pastor? Well, you know, and then it's either justify what I'm going to do and forgive it, or I'll just ignore you. Hmm. Right. You're being very judgy. Hmm. It's like my neighbor once asked, do you think it's a good idea that I get drunk and snort cocaine all the time? I'm like, well, no, not really. I don't really think it's probably the best way to love your neighbor. <laughs> yeah, it's generally not going to be good for your overall health either. No, know. no, it's not. But he was asking me in the context of talking about the church he goes to, and he believes he's a faith healer. And so he's a faith healer who has a really wicked cocaine habit. And so asking me in the context of a conversation about Christianity and church, ask me that question. And I know what he wants me to do, which is essentially let him off the hook. Because those questions, when they do come at me, they're always premised by, I'm going to tell you this, but I really want you to kind of get me off the hook. Wow. Absolve me. Versus me saying, well, it's probably not the best way to love your neighbor. No, no, it's not. Well, <laughs> that is our project. Affirmation um, leading to self-justification, right? Absolutely. What the heart wants, the mind justifies. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, Luther is not kind of tacking this this modern prejudice onto his exegesis where it's, hey, here's my personal experience. Now I'm going to search scripture to justify my personal experience. Mm -hmm. Instead, he starts from the opposite end, listening to scripture and then applying it to the light of daily life. Faith in God and experience in life were so intimately linked for Luther that the beginning cannot be distinguished from the end. Yeah, and I think... Uh... You could, we could make the argument that the reason for that is is the the prayer life that Luther has specifically out of the monastic tradition of uh, with the yes. Psalter, right? Yes. And so these these Psalms are, um, they are the paradigm that he's operating out of, 
correct right. i would yeah they're formative so. to his understanding and mm-hmm. when you read the psalms you find that they're 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 eminently um, present we would say right right they they don't seem to be like distant abstract theological ideas but no they're trying no. to deal with day to day maybe day to day in the life of you know david or or the, the other mm-hmm. psalmist but yeah um but still day to day but yeah we would say in the present they're eminently practical mm-hmm. yeah so faith in god and experience uh, that is also why Luther's, quote-unquote, life between God and the devil, unquote, must deal with his view of his own life, as well as with his interpretation of how things stand in the lives of all. Hmm. Luther's reply to Erasmus, and this is a key point, right, is that when I ask, well, what do you think this means? Every answer will be different. Therefore, the way in which I, quote-unquote, apply scripture to people in the present tense as a pastor is going to change with every single person. Whereas what Luther is doing, because he's pre-modern, is saying, no, this is indicative of the entire human experience. But this word of God covers all people. Yeah, I mean, Luther may have experienced the crisis of conscience more acutely than some do. Mm -hmm. But you're right. His assertion is that, no, we all share the same crisis of uh, conscience that that I did, that I had. Mm -hmm. You know, this dramatic experience. It is part of... um, everyone's experienced to varying degrees and in various ways, but it's there, mm-hmm. it's universal. So, you know, fighting against sin, death, and devil, like he does in the Christian questions and their answers, right? Like, yeah. you don't believe you need the sacrament? And then he goes to three things that everybody has in common, right? Right. You have flesh you and have... blood, and yeah. <laughs> and the devil's around, and... Uh, Are you in the world? Have you not looked up lately? <laughs> exactly. And we're go- you're all going to have... Um, everyone in that it, who hears those questions are going to have the same experience, right? And that's and he has the you read his letters of pastoral counsel, mm. and then you talk with people in the present tense about weekly communion. Same arguments. Mm. There's almost no like he's getting the same pushback for his teaching on the sacraments that we get. So we're not we're not arguing against the particularity of individuals and their individual experience, right? Um, but. But Luther is suggesting that there are broad, broadly speaking, common experiences as well. Right. right. There's mm-hmm. the experience of sin, and there's the experience of justification. Right. That the forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake is universally applied to all people without uh, consideration of social status, age, gender, time, any of those things. Mm. Justification is justification. Like you said, you may be struggling with your faith. Another person may be comfort and, 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 and steadfast in their faith, but they both need to be justified for Christ's sake. Yeah. And I think we've talked about the nature of sin as well. I mean, we make that distinction dogmatically that there's original mm-hmm. sin, the sin of origin, the sin that, all, that affects all mankind. But, there, but the way that's manifest in your life, the symptoms of it um, are varied, right? And, and not right. as particular. It's like one theologian said about James and Paul. They're both treating the same disease. They're just using different medicine. Right. The problem is, is that sometimes people think of forgiveness, I think, as being about those particular manifestations of sin, right? Mm, right. You know, like it deals with the thing in my heart or in my mind or that I've done or said, mm-hmm. right? And it does. But it's really, you know, if it's Christ's forgiveness, it's trying to get at the heart of the whole matter. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to clear away the detritus, the flotsam and jetsam. Which does affect um, the symptoms, but it's really going Correct. after the disease. Right. Is that exactly. a helpful, helpful way to say it? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So Luther's reply to Erasmus is considered too complicated and strangely abstract. Mm-hmm. Funny. 
I get that all the time. Yep. Scholars have rejected the tract as unsuccessful or exaggerated. The quote-unquote liberal view has rendered it innocuous, and the quote-unquote pastoral one has tried to put it right, mm. which I would actually argue because as a pastor, as a person who rejected academia to be a pastor and walked away from it um, as being too innocuous and abstract, <laughs> that pastorally everything that I do is grounded in that text, the bondage of the will. Hmm. Ultimately, that's the foundation of my pastoral care is you need to be justified. You're in bondage to sin, death, and the devil, and you need to be set free. You need to be justified for Christ's sake. You need to know that you're elected. Without that, your approach to um, folks, you know, is going to be surface level, right? You're not going to really deal with the problem. You're only going to deal mm-hmm. with the symptoms like you were just talking about. Right. But it, but it ends up being, it will end up falling back onto other tools that are not right. the justification of Christ, in Christ Jesus, right? Well, and it goes back to the, my earlier point is if I believe that you're basically free mm-hmm. and then you come and confess your sin to me, I'm not going to set you freer by absolving you. What I'm going to do is I'll absolve you and then I'll give you homework. Right. So, so moral improvement, psychotherapy, um, mm-hmm. you know, other ways to kind of address a, prob- right. a problem, but it's only a problem on top of what is generally a pretty nice person, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly. That you're basically a good person, and I know you want to be a good Christian and, and be obedient to God, and you fell off the wagon, and here's how we can fix you up and rehabilitate you so you can get back on that 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 horse or that wagon. Right. Versus if we start where Luther starts, again, Erasmus doesn't hear confessions. Luther's heard thousands of confessions. Therefore, Luther knows in profoundly he knows sin is sin and Mm -hmm. we're all victims of the power of sin and therefore if you start from the assumption that we're all in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves then no matter what the person confesses to you you're unmoved you're not shocked by it because that's just the physical earthly daily manifestation of sin the power of sin and therefore nothing shocks you you don't try and fix it because you know it's unfixable it has to be killed it can't be fixed. It has to be put to death. Hmm. That's why Erasmus goes towards morality, whereas Luther works towards election, baptism, yeah. the comfort of the comfort of Jesus crucified for sinners. What Luther recognizes is that actually freedom, which comes through justification, is what leads to people not wanting to sin. Because like you pointed out earlier, if I give you a list of things not to do, guess what you always think about? Hmm versus, yeah, that's what sinners do or that's what sinners think about. You're not affirming sin. You're not, you know, waving your hand at sin, but rather you're acknowledging, yeah, that's what sinners do. And Jesus died for that sin too. Yeah. And like I said to my neighbor, it's just not the best way to love your neighbor. Mm-mm. Therefore, what what do we need to do so that you can better serve and love your neighbor and, and trust that Jesus has done the work of salvation for you? I have to set you free from sin, death, and hell. And there's only one word that can do that. There's only one name that can do that. And so for Erasmus, Jesus is Luther's excuse for letting people off the hook for sin. Hmm. Versus for Luther, Erasmus's Christless, spiritless theology, he calls chillier than very ice. Hmm. That well, touching Erasmus's theology will actually kind of make you necrotic. Well, yeah, because Erasmus's approach is inherently uh, individualistic and... Uh, leads you away from trust in God or faith in God, right? right? Because it's right. putting it back on your will, um, mm-hmm. which also then excludes you from your neighbor, right? Because you're really only right. dealing with yourself. Right. Well, think of it this way. If 
if Erasmus says fight the good fight of faith, he means you need to literally be more obedient, do more, change mm-hmm. your behavior, change mm-hmm. the way you talk, be a more moral person, be a good person, be a good Christian. When Luther says fight the good fight of faith, he, again, he's pointing back to daily contrition and repentance. He's pointing back to the need to put the old Adam to death through your vocation in loving your neighbor. And so for Erasmus, the purpose of the will is rehabilitation mm-hmm. of the sinner. For Luther, the purpose is actually to kill the old Adam. Yeah. Erasmus, it's, I'm not dead yet. You know? Right. So for Erasmus, you know, at too much absolution opens the possibility for more sin. Whereas for Luther, absolution opens the way for the old Adam to die. Hmm. It's just a completely different understanding of what scripture is teaching. Yeah. And then how it's applied in, in real life. Well, and then you know, what, what power the word has or has right. been given by God. What, what is it? What is it? It's living and active. What is it doing? Um, what is it there to right. do? And, if, and I think, if the law could give life, then <laughs> why right. would we need the gospel? And this is why even Lutherans today will call the bondage of the will innocuous. Um, what, are, what are some other ones? Provocative for sure. Unsuccessful, exaggerated to extreme. I've heard all of these from people mm-hmm. yeah. in the last 20 years a lot or there's a there's a way that you could understand it right so right but i would just argue when you listen to them they're erasmian that's why they don't understand it the reason it's abstract is not because it is it's because they want it to be because it's it's too imminently practical it's too concrete and real yeah it's it's too categorical as luther would say in the second section because when he deals with god and the whole question of God, he zeroes in on Jesus and he works categorically. Anything that's not Christ is the devil and death and sin. And anything that's not the way is error. Anything that's not the truth is a lie. And what the way the truth, and anything that's not life is death. Mm. Luther works thesis and antithesis. Yeah. It's, a, it's categorical. Whereas Erasmus kind of foreshadows uh, the Hegelian synthesis that came later that let's try and find the middle ground between these two things. Right. And then build a whole schema or a system around Right. That. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm not a bad person. I mean, I do have some good in me, so let's try and find the middle where I can accentuate the good and then, you know, tamp down the bad. Right. But that's the, mm. that's the kind of demilitarized zone of, of the Christian life then is there's gotta be space for you to make choices one way or the other. Whereas Luther, his analogy is actually you're like a dumb animal that's ridden by the, either God or the devil. Right, right. And and people go, that's that's too abstract. That's too exaggerated. It's like no, actually, that's from the Psalm. Right, and it's really what it comes <laughs> down to is it's it's too um, disempowering. Right, right. Exactly. It takes control away from you. It takes choice yeah. away from you. It's not abstract. It, it's just it it. It's uh, passive. Right. And for those of you who think that should equals can, Luther is offensive <laughs> because mm-hmm. he just goes, should doesn't equal can. That's nonsense. Because either Jesus is all in all or he's not. Mm. But there's no in-between place. Again, you read that section where Luther talks about this categorically and it is destructive. He's just clear cutting whole mountains of theology. So back to uh, Obermann then. He, Luther was unquestionably being provocative. Quote, free will in man is the realm of Satan. Or God himself does evil through those who are evil. Boom shakalaka. In fact, Melanchthon accused Luther of being Manichaean when he says these things. Yeah. Wild-eyed Manichaean ravings. 
It's interesting because I think, you know, Luther sees God maybe in the way of C.S. Lewis, you know, he's he's a lion, uh, he's good, but yes. he's not tame, right? And, mm-hmm. and Luther's willing to just um, let God be God and not always have to justify him, right? To justify yes. God and what he does, um, but rather see how God is justification of us. Right, right that's around. the nature of theodicy, mm-hmm. right? This very modern movement called theodicy where God is no longer a judge, he's in the defendant's chair and we get to sit in the judge's chair. Right, so is God evil? And God mm-hmm. has to justify himself to us. And that's the thing. I think Erasmus is trying to domesticate God. Yeah. And Luther, in I think it was Edwards who said, you don't defend God, you just open the cage and let the lion out. <laughs> and I think that's what Luther does with scripture is he just lets scripture fly. Because as you pointed out, the word of God, it goes out and it has power and it doesn't return to him empty handed. Yeah. And it doesn't always make you comfortable or at ease. Sometimes, you know, Upsets the apple cart, as they say, or disturbs exactly. you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, the, the the God who is distant is a lion. And like you said, he's not safe. And he's not good, by the way, either. But the God who is close, who is intimate with us, Jesus, the Lion of Judah, he's good. But he's just not safe. Right. But there's not two separate lions. <laughs> right. It's the same lion. It just depends on which side of him you're standing on. Yeah. Do you get to if see his with, backside or do you get to see... Right. You know, if you're with side? Lucy, uh-huh. he's good. Yeah. And yeah, he's not safe, but he's good. But if you're the ice queen, mm-hmm. he's just bad. Mm-hmm. He needs to be put down. So back to Oberman, his response, Luther's response to Erasmus seems to have deteriorated into contempt for man and a profanation of God. Hmm. And, and this is the thing too, is that most modern critics, and even in Luther's own day, they thought that Erasmus was the positive theologian because he was defending human possibility. Oh potentiality and that luther was you know negative nancy <laughs> but yet if you really look at the argument luther's the positive theologian because erasmus has no faith whatsoever in man's ability to live free and to live in forgiveness to be justified and live freely in that forgiveness hmm. and that's why he's constantly trying to put up these boundaries these fences whereas luther has absolute faith in the power of god's word and the power of christ and therefore sets about to set people free so that they might be justified and live in that justification. Mm-hmm. And so even in the, again, even Lutherans to this day will say that Luther is negative and pessimistic about people and about God and that Erasmus was the positive theologian when it's actually the exact opposite. Yeah, it's a, it is a low anthropology. It's a low view of man, but, mm-hmm. but not in a sense of you know, unloved by God or something like that, right? No. But no, rather uh, re- regarding man's agency, our ability to to fear, love, and right. trust in God. He's... In relation to things above us, mm-hmm. we have no choice, no will, no freedom. That is in regards to salvation, to the things of God. But in regards to things that are quote unquote below us, like choosing to put your pants on in the morning, you do have some choice. You do have some agency. And this is the thing is that Luther's not saying we have no free will. What he's saying is in relation to God, you have no free will. Mm-hmm. God is free and you're not, is what he says in the bondage of the will. Right. But when you D- decide to get married, <laughs> uh, right. you choose your spouse and you make that vow. Um, right. Yeah. That's, that's I can choose to be a better husband. Mm-hmm. Sure. I have a choice to be a better husband. I have a choice to be a bad husband. I have that choice. I don't have a choice about who I fall in love with though. Not really. I mean, I could grow to love someone, Hmm. but you don't really have a choice about who you fall in love with. Hmm. That's why you can have a friend or a sibling who falls in love with somebody and you look at that person and go, I don't get it. 
And the and the response is, I don't know. I I just love her. It's yeah. Like, but again, we wanna we wanna qualify that and list all the reasons, positive and negative, for why we love someone, as if that has anything to do with the real nature, the essence of love. Hmm. You just love who you love. So Luther is unquestionably being provocative, saying things like free will and man is the realm of Satan, and God himself does evil through those who are evil. Erasmus seems to have deteriorated into contempt, or he kind of has contempt for Erasmus. He seems to be profaning God and be having contempt for people in general. And yet, Obermann continues, as ill-structured as the bondage of the will is, which I would argue it's actually very well-structured, it is not in the least a failure. It is ruthlessly direct and clear. It's not, see, this is why I have a problem with this. They follow this late medieval form of debate. And so Luther responds to Erasmus point by point. Mm-hmm. That's right. There's there's four sections of the bondage of will because there's four points that Erasmus makes. Right. It so is ordered. It's extremely well ordered. It's just dense because it's a late medieval form of debate that doesn't exist anymore for us. Well, I, I sense that Luther, you know, he's his... His responses are like bees buzzing in his head, right? And so he, yeah. he can only like deal with one thing at a time, but they just start coming out, right? He keeps yes. pulling them out, and it's like, oh yeah, right. there's this, oh, and there's this, and there's this. Yeah, he's he's definitely a pattern guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Which is why he never wrote a systematic theology because one, he didn't have the time. Two, he didn't care to write a systematic theology because he didn't think he was important enough to do something like that. And three, his mind isn't organized that way. Yeah, I mean, it was a struggle for him to compose the catechism. He talks about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, exactly. He Which talks is about as that. close as he gets. Uh, it's a very basic systematic theology, right? It's really just the chief parts of the faith. You even read the small cult articles. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot going on in the small cult articles that you don't find in Augsburg, mm-hmm. uh, the apology to the Augsburg Confession, or the formula. Mm-mm. It's those are very orderly and linear because the people who composed them were very orderly linear thinkers. Well, just, just look at how you know the editors have attempted to break it down into like two. What is it? Right. Section two, part two, B. <laughs> right, right. As like, if you it's, can't contain this man, you no. can't contain his thoughts. No. And so I think that's maybe a part of it too. Is that within each section, each response to Erasmus, Luther is. Like I said, when he says whatever is not the way is error, what is not a, what is not life is death, what is never truth is is a lie, then he'll something else will spark his imagination, some other text of the scriptures. Mm-hmm. So then he'll be like, which reminds me of John chapter ten, and then he'll jump to John chapter ten for two pages, and then go, you know, now that I've covered John chapter ten, that reminds me of Isaiah chapter fifty three. So he jumps to Isaiah fifty three, then comes back around to his point, and so you can go ten, twelve pages deep of Luther just sniffing around the trees of scripture and then zeroing back in on his original point. Yeah, Therefore, it's obvious that the entirety of scripture opposes free will. And you're like, oh, was that the point? I forgot what the point was. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like I a lost podcast, the actually. Well, back to the text. Uh, where, what were we doing? Yeah, okay. That's right, exactly. <laughs> and so, as ill-structured as it is, according to Obermann, it's not a failure. It's ruthlessly direct and clear. Were these the only pages of Luther's writings to have survived? We could deduce from them the total scope of Luther's thinking. Oh, look at that. Yeah. So and that's it, really, the. I mean... It is comprehensive. I think so. It's For me, it's a toss-up between the 1535 Galatians lectures and this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because... Uh, the bondage of the will is is more systematic because it is a, a direct response to this treatise by Erasmus. But he thought he was going to die during those 1535 lectures. And so he really pours everything he's got into them yeah. because he had, I think, 
Some scholars think he had had a mini stroke or a minor heart attack, a minor mm. heart attack. Okay. And then he had bleeding ulcers on his legs and he had probably ulcers in his stomach. And he had that, um, what's that ringing in your ears? What's that called? Tinnitus. Tinnitus. He had tinnitus. Uh, his daughter had just died. Uh, you know, uh, Magdalena died pre- a couple of years before that. There was a plague going through Wittenberg. Again, they had evacuated, but he stayed. There was a lot going on during those Galatians lectures. And so... In a certain sense, I had my professor actually, when he and I would sit and read the Galatians lectures every other summer that we weren't reading the Bonners of the Will, on the front cover of my copy of Galatians, it says Luther's Last Will and Testament. Hmm. Because that's really what he thought those lectures were. They were, And he even says that during the lectures, I may not make it to the end of these lectures. But, but Galatians as a book, too, is, is a, a framework for Luther as, as far yes. as uh, his approach to... The heart and center of the Christian faith, and justification right. by faith. I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And the relationship of law and gospel. I mean, that's yeah, uh, that's everything profound. Yeah, yeah. The bondage of the will is like a, a cannon shot. Galatians is like um, carpet bombing. Mm-hmm. It's just because he's got the, again. He keeps working through the text, so he has time within the text, within those lectures, to to go in different directions. But he's also contained by the lecture yeah. time. I have that, this much time with my students today. Yeah. And and certainly some of you know the really poignant bitterness that Luther has in 1525 towards the papacy by mm-hmm. 1535 you know it's been simmering a long time so it's pretty right. it's it's pretty intense yeah exactly yeah for sure I think this is like a double this is like a uh, uh, two handed sword mm-hmm. kind of like a claymore where he's just swinging it left and right and just cutting down whole swaths of theology Galatians is more like a, a katana or a rapier. Mm-hmm. where it's surgical almost the way he gets into yeah. these topics. He's been through the arguments enough at that right, point that right. he does it with precision. Yeah, Exactly. He's seasoned. Hmm. So the tract was entitled The Bondage of the Will in direct response to Erasmus's preceding treatise De Libero, Libero Arbitrio, the free will, but it could much better have been called The Majesty of God. Hmm. That would immediately have revealed what was at stake while rendering it less shocking. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. So he's defending God as well, right? He is. He's trying to protect God from us pig farmers. Hmm. Or just pigs. Yeah. With our but, with our spectacular will. <laughs> yes. So Luther's dispute with Erasmus had already begun several years earlier, though neither publicly nor directly. Luther saw no advantage in confrontation. The preaching of the gospel would suffer as much harm as scholarship and the arts. And yet he was divided against himself. While desiring the compromise of silence, he wanted to debate the issue. No, he didn't. It was the otherwise reticent Erasmus who allowed himself to be thrust into open confrontation, not only by critics who unjustly distrusted him, but also by his patrons amongst the nobility who rightly admired him. King Henry VIII of England and Duke George of Saxony, for Hmm. example. Hmm. That's right, because he's from Rotterdam, but he was in England. Right. He was friends with Thomas More. Mm -hmm. They were... yeah, best friends. Yeah, Erasmus was kind of itinerant. He he had he held a chair on many faculties gotcha. and would kind of travel and lecture and travel and lecture. He didn't really have a home because he was a bastard. He was the son of a knight who refused to take um, claim him as his son, and therefore he had no title. He had no name. Has anyone done yeah. work on the influence of Erasmus and the humanists on on the Church of England of you know after Henry and the developments there? I'm sure. Yeah, that'd be interesting. I'm sure there is. Yeah, yeah, that would be interesting to look up. I because, had to do a report in college on term- Thomas More. That's the only re- way I found out about Erasmus was through that. Yeah, you do seem to have 
um, especially in the leading towards the, um, the Calvinist Reformation, you know, mm-hmm. um, moving away from what, what we call the Lutheran Reformation. Um, wasn't, it was a practical decision, but I can't imagine, uh, you know, that uh, this humanist movement wasn't an influence there to, to move yeah. in that direction. So, well, listeners, yeah, do the research. There you go. Let us know. Let us know. <laughs> if you know use, something. Use the Google, search the internets, the yeah. interwebs. Do so in help. early 15... Help. In early September 1524, the time had come. Johannes Frobin in Basel published De Libero Arbitrio Diatribe Sive Colatio. Close enough. Diatribe. Yeah. My Latin sucks. In it, Erasmus took up the thesis of the unfree will, which Luther had long formulated openly. The question, as the humanist emphasized, was one which scholastic theology had already found extremely perplexing. Mm-hmm. Guys like Gregory of Rimini said that God allows us the illusion of free will, but that ultimately he is the prime mover and therefore everything we do is an accident. It's a consequence of him moving the wheels, moving things behind the scenes. He's the wizard and uh, he's you know pulling the levers and everything behind the scenes. But that for our, this is so great, the scholastics couldn't get, they couldn't figure it out. Like, what do we do with election? Well, God gives us the illusion that we have a choice. <laughs> but it's, even it's kind of a cop out, but you know, it is. But even Gregory admitted, yeah, we should never talk about this stuff in public. This is academic stuff, and that's why, especially um, with the formula on election, why it's so profound to say this is this doctrine is for your comfort. Right. Because that's exactly. the polar opposite of this doctrine isn't going to comfort you so much so that right. we don't want you to even know about right. it. Right. <laughs> well, and that's, that's such a great point, too, because, yeah, uh, Formula 11 on election, they quote the bondage as well. They say it straight up. Mm-hmm. But what was really interesting, if you read Luther in his Romans lectures from 1517, when he takes up the question of predestination, he says to his students in 1517, never talk about this with your, with your congregation. It's just going to confuse them. It's just going to confuse them. It's going to trouble their consciences. So you can see from 1517 to the drafting of the formula, how Luther, in, in from 1525 to the Galatians lectures in 1535, to even he quotes himself in the bondage of the will in his Genesis lectures in mm-hmm. 1535 to 45. And you can see how he moves from, yeah, never talk about this in public, to this is actually the foundation of justification. This is all you should talk about. <laughs> Preach on election all the time. In our in our setting, it's going to be you are baptized into Christ, right? Exactly, exactly. You know, but uh, our friend George Borgart, I preached a sermon for Higher Things mm, four years ago now, and I preached that the Syrophoenician was in Christ from the foundation of the world. Oh, that's yes. an Ephesians, I remember that's that an Ephesians text. Why would Jesus have mercy on her? And it took uh, it took Pastor Borgart three years to catch up with that sermon, <laughs> and then one day he just texted me. He goes, "I get it now. I get it." <laughs> I was like, okay, good. But it was not that obviously Borgart's not theologically astute or not a smart person. He is, but it's just the whole matter of election and how I could take an Ephesians text and apply it to that text of the Syrophoenician woman in any way, shape or form was, well, how can you say she's elect? Because he has mercy on her and he sends her home and says, your daughter's forgiven mm-hmm. or right. healed. I'm sorry, healed. Um, why would he do that? Because he's chosen her since the foundation of the world. Yeah. Duh. Well, and the challenge with that text uh, for the, you know, immediate context of it was that she was Syrophoenician. She was She was a Canaanite. Yeah. Yeah, she's, she's not a, a Jew. She's the daughter of Jezebel, not of Israel. Right, exactly. But even the dog eats the crumbs mm-hmm. that fall from the master's table. IE, 
even the dogs are are chosen even the dogs are fed by the master and that's so even for those of us who perpetuate and affirm election it's still difficult to let that interpret all of scripture hmm. because as i was accused of following that sermon i was denying original sin by saying that and I said, uh, you can't say that Article 11 of the formula contradicts our, uh, the article on original sin mm-hmm. any more than you can say the article on free will in the formula contradicts Article 11. But rather, election actually affirms original sin. Because mm-hmm. how can one be chosen in Christ if one is incapable of coming to Christ? There ends the rub. Yep. There ends the rub. There can be no election without original sin. Mm-hmm. They're and not I- too poles they're or hand in glove you say it the other way around um, because of original sin there can only be election yeah that's a better way to say it exactly mm-hmm. but we, we wrestle with it even those of us who affirm it because again life experience uh, well i was just saying this in bible study of the other night we affirm that jesus died for the sins of the whole world until we meet other sinners mm-hmm. <laughs> and then in in point of fact we're like well mm, i mm, Maybe for that one, really? Yeah, I mean, if you went to a different church, maybe I could def I could be on board with that. But hmm, all sins are equal. But that's horrible. That's I don't think I know. Are you mm. sure he's repentant enough, Pastor? Are you sure that she's proven that she's truly sorry for what she did, Pastor? Are, are you at, sure? Are they safe? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Are they safe? But yeah, that that the whole matter of election is it's always a rub for us. That's mm-hmm. why I think we we avoid a, a, the Ephesians epistle. Sure, we, it's just we again we just quote the he, we are predestined to walk in good works and then just leave it at that. <laughs> like, let's just quote that one pat and then just leave everything else alone because it's just too much grace talk, too much election talk. Again, we you have been chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world. God chose you in Christ from the foundation of the world. What do you even do with that? My confirmation verses 2, 8, 9, verses 8, 9, mm-hmm. not verses 10. So then uh, it was pointed out to me, well, <laughs> you need to go on to verse 10. I'm like, yeah, that's great. Let's And let's keep going. And right. like, no, no, we got to get deal with 10. We got to talk about these works. I'm like, no, keep going. <laughs> keep going. Keep, keep going. Keep it reading. gets worse. <laughs> yeah. As if Paul spends the entirety of the first two chapters only talking about Jesus and election, pauses for a clause to go, oh, here's your agency. Now let me continue to talk about Jesus for the next several chapters. Mm-hmm. It's like Paul had a mini stroke right in the middle of writing that. <laughs> it's like, maybe no. He's, maybe he's just throwing a bone. You know. That's what it is. Yeah. Paul's Paul's so good about throwing bones to people. <laughs> <laughs> this will keep you busy for a while. The way he threw a bone to the Corinthians. <laughs> Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Um, so back to the text then. So Johannes Frobing and Basel in fifteen twenty four had already re- written something about this topic of the free will. Hmm. In response to Erasmus, too. Mm-hmm. So in it, Erasmus took up the thesis of the unfree will, which Luther had long formulated openly. So the question, as the humanist Erasmus emphasized, was one which scholastic theology had already found extremely perplexing. The Holy Scriptures were evidently not unequivocal. (laughs) And even if Luther were right, even if, it would be inadmissible for an assertion of this kind to be made in public from the pulpit, Hmm. as we've been talking about. Where would the normal Christian be? And this is key, too. Erasmus does not consider himself normal. He's not like the hoi polloi. He calls them the hoi polloi. And he considers himself to be above them, morally and spiritually. Yeah, maybe, which is why maybe outwardly, yes, yes. Well, as my 
doctor father liked to say, Erasmus didn't drink coffee. He drank tea and he always had his pinky sticking straight out when he tipped the coffee. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's running <laughs> yeah. with Luther. Luther has some... Uh, um, some insults and towards Erasmus yes, that are that's right. What's the one? Oh, limp-wristed. Yes, he is limp-wristed. That's right. <laughs> Where uh, would the normal not, Christian be? Not PC anymore, but whatever. <laughs> if at the mercy of fate he were relieved of all responsibility for his own moral improvement, this is page two thirteen. This is really the thesis of the freedom of the will by Erasmus. If you don't want to read the freedom of the will by Erasmus, this summarizes his entire argument. Mm-hmm. That is, where would the Christian, the normal Christian, the hoi polloi, where would the regular pew-sitting Christian be if, at the mercy of fate, he were relieved of all responsibility for his own moral improvement? Where would he be? He would, of course, abuse, right? Yes, he would abuse his freedom. The thesis of the unfree will would lead the ordinary believer to moral abuse without helping the theologian to attain the certainty of knowledge. Hmm. What's the purpose of the Bible? Knowledge. Right. So what certainty of knowledge does he want? Moral knowledge. How to live a godly life. Um, Christian philosophy. Right. And he needs to establish that for the sake of the ordinary believer so that they know what to do. Because remember, what is philosophy but the study of wisdom, the gathering of knowledge to help you be a better person? And he's a humanist. This is his project. Therefore, what would be the purpose of reading the Bible? To gain more knowledge, basic instructions before leaving earth. Make this world a better place. Make this world a better place for you and me. We are the world. Make you better people. (laughs) There we go. So it was of the utmost importance to Luther to keep the discussion Discussion of this fundamental issue from being the reserve of theologians. What Luther wanted was to present his basic ideas plainly in preaching and teaching so as to make them intelligible to his less educated contemporaries, and even to do it in German. Hmm. And this is, again, another key difference. Erasmus holds himself above the people he's writing about. Luther firmly plants himself alongside the people that he's writing about. Yeah. Because as I said, Luther himself sat in that that um, confessional with Staupitz for hours and then sat in the, on the other side of the, the divider and heard other people confess their sins for hours. Mm. And what he heard was his confession. Yeah. I'm not all that terribly unique, right? Right. <laughs> or terrible. Once he, yeah. Once he got on the other side of it, he realized, oh, I, I just have more time to obsess about this stuff than the regular, you know, Joe mm, Schmo. That's right. Because I don't really have a job. <laughs> other than to pray, meditate, and and do you know clean the the hallway or whatever it might be, but that for a pig farmer or a barber or, or even a king, they're dealing with I got to put my food on the table. Mm. I don't have time to think about my eternal salvation every moment of the day. I don't have time to go to the confessional three times a day. Yeah, it doesn't mean that it. Um, what do you want to say? That it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> But it, it does mean that they just aren't as obsessive or, uh, you know. Right, because they a, just don't have the time to think about it. Mm-hmm. And so for Luther, though, that's the point, is I'm not above you just because I'm Herr Luther. I'm not above you because I'm the reformer of Germany or some or the prophet of, the, of Saxony. I or the am angel of heaven, right? That's right, the angel of heaven. I'm just a sinner or a bag of maggots, if you will, <laughs> as he refers to himself. So this is the thing then he has, he, Luther had always rejected the idea of an educated elite. 
The problem was one that has stirred reflective people of all eras and educational levels. If God is the supreme ruler, and there was no quarrel between Luther and Erasmus on that point, the sovereignty of God, the question of how to reconcile the cruel, ruthless, and apparently blind course of history with God's mercy will inevitably arise. Yeah. Again, God hidden, God revealed. As we talked about before, right? Right. It is only a short step from this challenge to a nightmarish conclusion. God is merely the past hope of generations that wanted to believe. He is the projection of a society in search of an ultimate design and purpose. Heaven is empty and we stand alone. Hello and welcome to modern atheism. <laughs> yeah. Well, or the Secular humanism. Right. That's what, uh, what do we call them today? The rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E's. Right? Yes. It's not that they're radically opposed to Christianity um, or any kind of belief set. They really just don't see the point of any of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's me more like and whatever. My, yeah. Yeah. It's the meh religious position. <laughs> it is. It's the meh generation. Yeah. If that works for you, so right. be it. Exactly. So that's the key thing. Luther's reply to Erasmus is modern in that it already reflected these consequences in the form of questions. As he battled with the problem, he did not take Erasmus the man and programmatic reformer into account. He suspected the Dutchman of being the first Christian atheist. Hmm. Yep. All the characteristic aspects of Luther's thinking and beliefs can be found here. God's grace in human works, the dark power of the devil, and the viability of human beliefs. Well, that's the problem with trying to stand alone, isn't it? Is that you end mm. up just being without any need for God. Right. And thus an atheist. Right. We could, I would even argue that the, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee mm. is also Jesus presenting, quote unquote, a Christian atheist in the Pharisee. Because it said what? He stood by himself and prayed Thank to God himself. God, I'm not like. And yeah. Right. But he prayed to himself. Within himself is the, um, the um, mm-hmm. right. preposition there. He prayed within himself to himself. Depending, again, how you translate that. But nonetheless, he prayed to himself. Yeah, he justifies himself um, apart from God and at the exclusion of those around him. Right. Right. So inevitably, what Jesus is saying to those who he tells the parable to, and by this point, again, in the Gospels, we know that Jesus has finally gotten frustrated with, hey, is he talking about us? And just goes straight in with, this is about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Yeah. Oh, look, I'm eating with a tax collector and you're Pharisees. What a coincidence. Hmm. And so, Winky in essence, dink, he's basically saying to the religious leaders around him, you're atheists. Hmm. The tax collector is actually praying to a God, and the, the, the Pharisee is praying to nobody but himself. And we see this uh, poignantly during Holy Week, right? We have no God yes. but Caesar. And yes. we, we really actually, yeah, they, they, their religious schema has no need for, they don't right. even need a temple later. The temple Right, uh, they just need the commandments, man. They just, just need obedience. Just need obedience, yeah. And that's why they're like a weather vane theologically, and they can say, well, who's your God today? Well, what's ever going to keep me comfortable mm. and not get me crucified next to Jesus? So this is the thing that for Luther, that's Christless, spiritless, colder than very ice is just a nice way of saying you are godless. You're an atheist. Because as you pointed out, in the end, you stand alone without God, at least the God of the cross. And that is, I mean, that's going to be the result of any kind of natural religion, right? Yes. Whether absolutely. it's radical atheism where you deny, um, you know, God in Christ, but mm-hmm. but any kind of uh, obedience by works is it ends up just being about you 
and and do right. you me- measure ups do you stand up can you do you have enough credit in the bank or merit you know that that's yeah. going to earn whatever <laughs> you're hoping the next life is like <laughs> right yeah exactly it's just it's hopeless it's mm-hmm. a hopeless belief system mm-hmm. so erasmus had made a pertinent observation and drawn a reasonable conclusion from it the best minds of scholasticism had spent centuries comparing Bible passages and had nevertheless been able to agree on how much freedom man could have in a world ruled supremely by God. Unable to agree, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, unable to agree. Sorry. Did I say able? Mm-hmm. No, I'm sorry. Unable to agree on how much freedom man could have in a world ruled by God. There's no consensus was, on this point. No. It was therefore Erasmus's advice to draw the appropriate consequences from the situation and to counter any claim to absolute ultimate solutions which scholarly, with scholarly skepticism. Right. So because I, there has been no consensus, there can be no consensus. Exactly. And again, this is the difference between Luther the pastor and Erasmus the academic, hmm. is that Luther cannot... He, there are consequences for hmm. Luther, very real consequences because of the people he's dealing with, whether it be students, other faculty, when he goes out and visits churches, whether it's hearing confession, whether it's preaching at the, the church in Wittenberg, whatever it is, what he says has actual real world consequences. Mm-hmm. And he's right there. He sees it. He experiences it. Look at the peasants revolt mm-hmm. and look at his response to that. Right. He takes responsibility for that. And it, it literally crushes him. Erasmus, because he's itinerant and he lectures on different faculties and he's not anchored in any one place, there really is no consequence for Erasmus for what he says or does because it's abstract in general as far as he's concerned. These are abstractions. And this is my credit to of academics today, especially at the seminary. You get guys who are not pastors becoming academics or have such a limited amount of time in the, in the parish as to be irrelevant. I think we have an unspoken rule. Maybe it's even written somewhere, minimum three years uh, pastoral experience, but that does not mean full-time pastor no, experience either no it doesn't so you, as long as you're making some visits while you're in your phd program Doing your or graduate something, work exactly yeah then that means you have you know parish experience right no it doesn't work that way sorry well and there Speaking is a way a that pastor, a, it doesn't work that way a lot a lot of which a lot of that which passes as academic theolo- theology really has no bearing on no it um, doesn't. actually you know pastoral ministry No, and that's, I think, what creates so much distance for young pastors when they get into a parish is, yeah, your ideas don't apply here. You have to learn how to be their pastor. Well, and there's the danger of of preaching and teaching in such a way that, yes, everything you said was true, but it wasn't true for you or for them. Exactly, right. It's it's so, we use that term academic, but maybe a better word would be abstract or, mm-hmm. you know, head in the pretentious. skies, pretentious. Um, I've heard it referred to as bookish, you know? Yeah, pedantic, right? Right. But it, it is that sense of, well, I stand above you or I'm over you and I'm trying to educate you so you can be better Christians versus, no, I'm no different than you are. I stand alongside of you. I've just been elected to this office. Yeah, a I've simple man with a, a simple message. Exactly, exactly. I must decrease that he may increase. But for myself anyways, and I... I should say this. I'm not critiquing other people, Hmm. not critiquing myself. I am actually critiquing myself because I came out of a graduate program. Well, here we are doing a podcast on a pretty intense subject with- It is intense. From from an academic text. I came out of student teaching seminarians as a graduate TA. I taught people how to be pastors. I taught a preaching class. I taught people how to preach. 
And then I got to this congregation and found out I didn't know anything about preaching and taking care of my people. Mm-mm. That was crushing for me because it took me three years to finally accept and repent of that. Because mm-hmm. my entire life's program had been based on being an academic, being an intellectual, and having the answers. Because I had read a lot of books. I've read a lot of books. Yeah. And then you get a farmer say, hey, can you help me change the axle on my tire or on my tractor? And me saying no and him saying, well, then what good are you? What use are you to me? <laughs> we can talk theology while we change the axle. But if you can't help me change the axle, I don't have time for you. Oh, you've, you've read a lot of books. Can they jack up my tractor? <laughs> what practical use is any of your theology yeah. to me right here? Yeah. Because like, like we're talking about, why is my tractor broken down? Why is a quarter of my field going to be washed away by rain this season so that I can't pay my bills? Why would God do that to me? Yeah. I go to church. I put my offerings in the plate. I volunteer. I'm a good Christian. Why is this happening to me? Mm-hmm. That's a that's a that's a question that demands a concrete, real answer. Yeah, you could tell the story. You know, uh, who sent this man or his or his parents? You say that the, right. the glory of God would be revealed in him. Right, exactly. It's like, well, what's that glory going to look like? Mm, not so sure today. <laughs> right, exactly. And sometimes, pastorally, you learn there is no good answer. Mm-mm. No, we may but never you, know. We'll we'll never know. We just don't know. Right. But saying it's God's plan or something—that's a good way to get punched in the face. Woo. The will of God is always best, as the hymn goes. Right. Yes, exactly. The will of God is, yeah. Ugh. But this is the difference between Luther and Erasmus. Is that Luther publishes it in German because he wants the people to read this so that they, well, I don't know how many people read it in German, first of all, but because it is dense. It is. What is it? In, in English, it's what, 400 pages or so, right? It's, it's yeah, it's thick. <laughs> Depending on the volume you get, yeah, it's thick. But nonetheless, he just wants this to be imminently practical for people. Mm-hmm. It's a public confession. And for Luther, theology is public because Jesus is public. The gospel is public. It's not to be privatized. Yeah. The whole idea that there would be a doctrine of scripture that that needs to remain hidden or unused. Right. I mean, that runs contrary to scripture itself. I mean, it's a cyclical mm-hmm. argument, I suppose. But, you know, that all scripture is, is God-breathed and, and, and eminently practical, useful for doctrine, right. reproof, there correction, training in righteousness. And you're like, yes. Well, wait a minute. What about the doctrine of election then? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Do we just Dig ignore in. all of all of those texts that, that teach that God, you know, has chosen you? Right. And, right. Uh, Alex uh, works for you or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> right. So scholasticism could, was unable to agree on how much freedom that we have in a world ruled supremely by God, like I talked about Gregory of Rimini. It was therefore Erasmus's advice. Eh, should probably just say since they're unable to uh, come to a conclusion, there is no conclusion that we can come to. Mm-hmm. Right. This must have sounded like sweet music to the ears of many. It was the unmasking of a blind academic theology alienated from its historical sources when Luther goes after this. Hmm. That God is so far above us that we can never grasp more than a part of God's truth. For the truly pious, that's enough. Hmm. For Erasmus, those are impious questions. The question of election is an impious question. Therefore, it is not to be asked hmm. outside of academics. Because that's the realm of, of these questions. <laughs> So this must have sounded like sweet music to the ears of many. It was the unmasking of a blind academic theology alienated from its historical sources. Modern Bible scholarship in the 16th century, with its rediscovery of Hebrew and Greek, the languages of the Old and New Testaments, called into question the authority of the Latin text of the Bible, on which the whole of scholasticism had been based. 
We talked about that. Mm -hmm. But conservative theologians in Cologne, Louvain, Rome, and Paris stubbornly adhered to the Vulgate, the Latin translation sanctioned by the church. The authorized version. The, <laughs> yeah, exactly. The author versus Erasmus saying, I'm going to use the Greek text since, well, I, it's my text. I prepared it. <laughs> so these quote unquote obscurantists and quote unquote sophists who prided themselves on their pseudo education had succeeded in having the great German Hebraist Johannes Reuchlin condemned in Rome less than four years earlier in 1520. Hmm. Reuchlin was Melanchthon's father-in-law huh. or uncle something like that i can't remember right off the top of my head but he was yeah lincoln was was connected to royland somewhere wow. but anyways uh the first hebrew primer or uh, lexicon that luther purchased was 1505 it was published by royland oh look at that he was he was instrumental in allowing people to actually read hebrew and i think um lincoln learned his hebrew from royland so yeah so and then royland was condemned in 1520 because too much information <laughs> things are getting out of control so now they were endeavoring to silence Erasmus, whom they had long considered suspect as well. Hmm. Erasmus had a, he was also the, there's no better way to say it. Erasmus was a smart ass. And he wrote a book called In Praise of Folly. And he wrote it anonymously so that he could critique the Pope and mock the Pope and satirize the papacy. The problem is that everybody knew Erasmus published it. <laughs> because they read it and went, yeah, this sounds like Erasmus. No one writes like Erasmus. And Erasmus liked to do that because as a humanist, he didn't have a loyalty to the papacy. And he wasn't loyal to any theological faculty. Well, and, and plus he was over, you know, he had some distance. <laughs> he had distance, exactly. And therefore he was not a company guy, so to speak. Which is why I said earlier, he's not representative of late medieval Roman Catholic theology. Mm -mm, no. Because he's the guy who wants to stand outside and, and shoot spitballs at the front of the class. No, I mean, kind of the... Uh, the enshrinement of late, late medieval theology yeah. would be uh, the decrees from the Council of Trent, right? Right, right. Where it's... I would say, yeah, Cardinal Cajetan, Cajetan. Mm -hmm. right. he represents Thomistic theology. He's really the scholar of the day. Right. And unfortunately, we don't have a record of him and Luther having, you know, duking it out. We just know they did, but we don't know what the the, the scope of that was. Unfortunately, I wish they would have debated publicly. That would have kind of been the be-all, end-all for that. Hmm. So uh, they were ready to condemn Erasmus like they had condemned Reuchlin. He was impugned as Luther's guide and mentor, though from Erasmus's standpoint, Luther was anything but a disciple. They just took aim at the wrong guy. They should have taken aim at length and they would have been spot on. Hmm. With his trust in the potential of theology, Luther seemed to be quite the child of scholasticism, incapable of bearing the insecurity of scholarly research. <laughs> For the scholastic from Wittenberg, the adventure of open inquiry could be nothing but a bold attempt to undermine the church. Hmm. So that's what the way Erasmus views Luther. He's just a pup. He's just a scholastic pup. Yeah. And and he, his his writings, the way he's approaching this has real consequence. Right. We would say it does right. too, uh, in the positive. Um, but mm -hmm. for Erasmus, yeah, right. it's like, no, this is destructive theology. Right. And Erasmus does make that claim about Luther in his response that you're basically going to tear the church down mm -hmm. that you're, you're by, by teaching people this whole matter of election, people are going to make up their mind. Well, I can't choose to be saved. I can't choose to be damned. So therefore whatever I do is either blessed or damned by God anyways, because Erasmus cannot comprehend the nuance between predestination and election. Right. And therefore for him, it's just all, it's just opening the doors to chaos. We tend to use those terms interchangeably. Yes, we do. Uncritically. 
mm-hmm. unfortunately, ineffectively then. So we're kind of come to the last paragraph here in this section. This would, however, be a misrepresentation of Luther, as he was unquestionably one of the theologians who could appreciate what humanist scholarship had achieved. Mm-hmm. Without knowledge of ancient languages, there could be no reliable exegesis of the scriptures. When Erasmus published his edition of the Greek New Testament in December of 1516, Wittenberg hailed the work as revolutionary. It was that late. Wow. No, it must have been the Spanish guy that that published his in the 1490s then. I got those dates mixed up. Because I could have sworn there was a Greek New Testament published in the 1490s. Maybe that's the Spanish guy. And so, yeah, so Erasmus 1516, my bad. Wittenberg hailed the work as revolutionary. The first copy available there was received with great ceremony. In contrast to Erasmus, Luther even numbered among the first of the humanists of his time, among the few who used Reuchlin's work to study Hebrew. Thus, Luther recognized that the mastery of ancient languages was a necessary tool in accomplishing a clear textual interpretation of the Bible. Right. So we're talking about there. there's the aspect of the humanist movement, specifically the moral philosophy that would be rejected by Luther, but the other aspects of it um, you know, getting back to the sources, go, you know, working mm-hmm. with the original texts, and uh, even even bringing forward, you know, the actual writing of the philosophers, not not the derivative that he received, you know, through Lombard or Beale mm-hmm. or whoever. Um, right. Getting back to the Greeks and seeing what the Greeks actually said, that Luther right. would appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Because what's Luther's problem? Well, God is righteous and I'm not. So therefore. What do I do with this text? Well, maybe that's not what the text says, or maybe I need to dig deeper in the text and find out the original language of the apostle so that I can really understand what he's thinking. Cardinal Francisco Jimenez de Cicernos, or something like that, printed in 1514, so just two years before Erasmus. Uh, Actually, it wasn't, it was printed in 1514, but it wasn't widely published until 1520. Oof. So the, yeah, so Erasmus's was the first published edition, according hmm. to Wikipedia. So there I you repent go. of my false information. And knowledge. So I mean, this is all. I mean, this is a this is a monumental time. Yeah, <laughs> these few you know ten years hmm. right here. Crazy, crazy time. Again, here's the benefit of Google. If I had made this claim in 1516, you'd just have to write it out. <laughs> well, we are relying on Wikipedia. Although there's uh, there's notes. They tell you where they got this information. So No, that's right. That's right. We'll, we'll just go with it. Now I have to go back and figure out what the heck I was reading. <laughs> what was going on in 1519? Yeah. Maybe that's when they discovered uh, the Texas Receptus or something. Hmm. Although that's what Jerome used. So that doesn't... Yeah. That well, the, the no, I'm talking about the mid-1490s, like mm-hmm. after the printing press and then the publication of different Bibles. Hmm. Don't know. I'll have to go back and look. Nonetheless, that brings us to the conclusion of that section. I think we're definitely going to come back and do another episode on this chapter, though, because it continues. And I think Overman does a really good job of laying out not only the historical details, but also laying out the theology. Yeah. Narratively speaking, in a good way that you can understand and comprehend. Well, this idea that Luther is um, giving the scriptures in light of his own experience, you know, mm-hmm. that the two are, uh, they correspond to each other. He's hearing himself in scripture, his experience. Um, I think that's helpful. Uh, mm-hmm. Like we talked about with all the practical manifestations of this, this is not Luther. He's responding to an abstract theologian with concrete theology. Right? right, right. And so, yeah, if you like your theology abstracted or you like moral theology, moral philosophy, then Luther is going to be too exaggerated, too provocative, too mm-hmm. extreme in his 
in his uh, assertions. Versus if you're down with Luther, then when you read Erasmus, it does sound limp-wristed. He does sound like a wet blanket. He does sound like a pessimist. Yeah. And he doesn't make Jesus all in all. It's like, what's the Jesus, point, really? <laughs> right, right, exactly. Exactly. It does It does feel, it is Christless and spiritless, and it does feel hopeless at a certain point when you read Erasmus's treatise. Because you you end up asking, well, what's the point then? You know, at some point you got to get off the treadmill, right? No, no, you don't. <laughs> Not until the last day. Right. Because if you get off the treadmill and Jesus comes back tonight, you're going to be judged. So you got to keep the lights on, man. You got to keep that 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 uh, wick trimmed at all times. And this for Luther is unacceptable because as a monk, that's what he thought. <laughs> and it tore him apart. And yeah. therefore, the, that's the personal side of these is that when he reads Erasmus' treatise, he's like, oh yeah, I, I used to struggle with this stuff. But I'm on the other side of it now. Mm-hmm. And I know people who struggle with this stuff every day. And I don't want them to get a hold of this or have this given to them in such a way that this is actually yeah. good stuff. Because it just leads you further and further away from faith in Christ and more and more into yourself. Right? Exactly. And when you plunge into yourself, what do you find? Despair, hopelessness. Yeah. Hopelessness. You find ghosts is what you find. You don't find Christ, that's for sure. So that brings us to the conclusion of this episode. Thanks as always for listening. Go check out the other podcasts and content on the Higher Things website. Uh, our uh, Mr. Gillespie here has done a great job of updating the website, the front page, so that you can find stuff easier yeah. content-wise. Uh, subscribe to the podcast, please. Leave a positive review to bump us up on iTunes. Go buy the coffee by Gillespie. It's fearlessly roasted since 1515. I read that somewhere. And <laughs> <laughs> Close enough. 1515, 1915, somewhere around there. And um, <laughs> It's an ancient family recipe. You're a time traveler. Sorry. But uh, yeah, come back next week. Uh, same bat channel, same bat time for another podcast on Obermann. And we'll get back into Lutheran Erasmus again. Thanks for supporting. We really appreciate it. We love you. See you next time. See ya. You summoned me, Dr. Frankenstein? Indeed I did, Igor. I wanted to tell you that I'm retiring from the business of monster creation to do something that requires even more genius. What's that, Doctor? Coffee roasting, Igor. There are so many wonderfully complex variables to busy my intellect with. Try the end product, Igor. It's brilliant. And delicious. Not bad, Doctor. But have you considered just ordering your coffee pre-roasted? Preposterous, Igor. No one else has the scientific attention to detail that this enterprise requires. What about coffee by Gillespie? Coffee by Gillespie? Christopher Gillespie is a master at selecting high-quality specialty coffee beans that are as sustainable as they are tasty. And to roast them to their finest, he uses traditional techniques combined with the latest technology. Something a scientist like you should appreciate, Doctor. Indeed, indeed. But the coffee, Igor, is it any good? Everything about coffee by Gillespie is done with taste in mind. Gillespie even ships your coffee directly to your address so it doesn't lose its delectable flavor sitting on the store shelf. You've convinced me, Igor. Coffee by Gillespie clearly has me beat for coffee know-how. Where may I get some? Just go online to gillespie.coffee and order any time. Let it be done, Igor. But opt for the decaf. Frankie can be a handful when he's had too much caffeine. Coffee by Gillespie. It's brilliant. And it's delicious.